Welcome back everyone, it's been another fortnight which means it's time for another episode of the Talking Taxman podcast. Uh, today's guest is a cryptocurrency expert, uh, it seems to be something that's on a lot of people's minds at the moment, so uh, we'll be discussing a brief background, uh, some of the potentials for blockchain and some of the obstacles it faces, so do sit back, relax and enjoy. So today we're going to be talking about cryptocurrencies and blockchain. Um, so I've brought in a former Alti boy, um, Ibrahim Al-Kurd, and I'll let him introduce himself because he's had quite the exploits since leaving secondary school. So Ibrahim? Yep. So, yeah, as you said, former Alti boy and proud. So that's uh, known for now for a fair few years. Um, and from I left Alti and went to medical school because uh, you know, that's what a lot of people did. And I quite liked, you know, the sciences at the time. And then in medical school, I discovered cryptocurrency, uh, which ultimately ended up kind of changing the, the course of my life. So um, the first thing I did was back in 2015, whilst I was studying my first year of med school, I started um, arbitrage trading Bitcoin, which is basically uh, trading uh, on price discrepancies between different exchanges. Um, in 2016, I ended up launching NewMine, which um, builds large-scale cryptocurrency mining operations, predominantly throughout North America. And then through that company and the network that I built, I ended up setting up um, hedge fund out in the states, um, which is a crypto um, asset management firm. So those are those are my those are my two main companies. Um, and after three years of med school, I decided to kind of call it quits because I had you know these two businesses on the go, and I found that entrepreneurship was what I wanted to do. Um, and yeah, the rest the rest is history. So I uh, will no longer be a doctor, um, and now a full fledged entrepreneur. So with any crypto discussion. Um, and I've done lots of research and I still don't feel like I quite grasp the basic concepts. Um, so I thought it'd be good to just, as a slight introduction, just to kind of explain the background behind cryptocurrencies and, and this thing, this magical thing called blockchain. Um, so my understanding is that cryptocurrencies are built on blockchains. The blockchain is essentially a decentralized ledger um, secured by a large network of computers and decentralized basically meaning that it's not governed by one central body and the security is is um, dictated by the large network of computers and the fact that each transaction is recorded is that broadly your understanding or any any expert insights into that yeah i think i think that's a, a really good uh, kind of overview so you know going way back to 2009 uh, the first ever uh, cryptocurrency that was created is it was bitcoin uh, by a pseudo anonymous individual called Satoshi Nakamoto, who to date, no one knows um, who that person or entity is. And it's better to be kept a secret for the health of the network. So blockchain is essentially the underlying technology that the cryptocurrency, that, the, that fundamentally a cryptocurrency is. So blockchain is essentially a ledger of transactions where every single transaction that's ever occurred between any individuals using a particular cryptocurrency uh, is stored um, and can be kind of, you can go back in time and find it. So what happened was that over time, you know, um, Bitcoin was the first um, cryptocurrency um, that was based on blockchain technology. And then people started building Ethereum and other different tokens with different use cases and different applications and different names. Uh, and now there are thousands and thousands of different um, different uh, cryptocurrencies in the uh, blockchain sector 
Uh, Bitcoin dominates around 60% of the market cap, but then you know the other 40% consists of Ethereum, Litecoin, all the other smaller cap coins. So the space has really evolved, you know, in 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 the last decade. And um, you know, recently Bitcoin hit um, one trillion dollar market cap, uh, which I believe was, you know, we'll get into that a bit more later. But I believe that was fueled by um, two things: that all the quantitative easing that happened throughout throughout this pandemic, and also something called decentralized finance, which is um, which we'll get into later, but it's kind of a new subsector within the industry. It's it's, so, fascin- it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because one thing that one thing that um, I don't really understand is how 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 do new coins get created? Like yeah, so basically, if you want to build a new coin, you can build it on your own blockchain. So you can start from zero and code it upwards. Or alternatively, what you can do is um, you can build um, your coin on uh, something like Ethereum. So on Ethereum, you can basically build in something called an ERC20 token. So, and that's usually consists of only changing a few lines of code. And then you can take that token and give it a, a functionality within the industry. Um, so, you know, building, building a cryptocurrency on an existing platform like Ethereum will take a lot less work, uh, but then you're dependent on the success of Ethereum for your token as well. Right, makes sense. And in terms of how coins are actually mined, what are the, what are the sorts of operations that, that this, these supercomputers undertake? Because I know back in day, people with just normal PCs could, could mine cryptocurrencies, but now it's not so, not so easy. Yeah, so it depends on the cryptocurrency. So Bitcoin back, back you know, in 2009, 2010, you can mine it using a GPU card in your computer or, right. or even using your CPU. And you could generate you know, dozens and dozens of, of Bitcoins doing that. But what happened is that over time, as competition became higher, uh, people started making um, specialized computers called application-specific integrator circuits, ASICs, which the sole purpose of that computer is to mine one coin. So it's the sole purpose of it, you know, uh, a Bitcoin ASIC is just to mine Bitcoin. And it can do it a lot more powerfully than a GPU card in your computer. So now it's reached a stage where if you try to mine Bitcoin with a GPU, it's, it's basically negligible the amount that you're going to mine, you know, close to zero. But, if you, but so that's why you need to only mine it with an ASIC. And then what we do as a company we basically set up these mining operations. So the way mining works is that you have all these computers essentially racing to solve a complex, complex mathematical problem. So to give you an analogy, you know, if I had a class of 30 students, a math class, and I said to them, uh, the first person that you know, solves this equation is going to be paid, um, it's going to be paid, you know, in pounds. So similarly, all these computers race to solve the mathematical problem. And the first um, person that owns the computer to solve it is paid out the Bitcoin. But what happened essentially was that because of the, because of the competition, what people started doing is teaming up together, right? So uh, instead, of, instead of people individually racing to, to, to solve the mathematical problem, they essentially got together and created mining pools. And then they all worked together to solve the problem and then distribute the coins between each other, depending on the kind of the mining power that that person brings to the pool. So, you know, the space is always evolving and all these new kind of um, technologies are being added all the time. How how simple is it to um, say how how much Bitcoin you'd get from a certain amount of time of of mining? So, so suppose um, you have a supercomputer. How long would it take to say mine half a Bitcoin or something? Um, or is it impossible so to say? No, the, there is. It's actually you can run a calculation that would be kind of pretty accurate. Um, the Essentially, the, there's a few things that determine how much Bitcoin you're paid. One is the, the amount of competition. 
within the network. So that obviously the higher the competition and the less the, the less portion of the mining power you have and the less Bitcoins you're gonna be paid over time. And the other thing is it's called the block size. So right now, 6.25 Bitcoins are distributed um, to the miners every 10 minutes. And every four years, this halves. And the reason this halves is that Satoshi, Satoshi built it like this so that um, over time, the supply of Bitcoins into, that's coming into the market drops and therefore that will reduce the supply and therefore over time increase kind of the the price of bitcoin so you know whereby something like so fun fact every single fiat currency fiat currency means pounds dollars whatever it is every single fiat currency that's ever been created has failed sooner or later right so they don't they don't stand the test of time because people essentially governments or the entity that can just print um these fiat currencies and that has a deflationary effect on yeah. kind of that obviously you must know and that you're purchasing power so this is built in a way where over time the scarcity of bitcoin will drive its price up yeah and that brings us quite nicely onto onto our next point so one of the things that a lot of bitcoin bulls are betting on is it to become an alternative monetary system in the future so i've listened to what you know bitcoin pioneers have have been discussing and one of those is the is the Winklevoss twins, and Tyler in particular, he is quite a large advocate of Bitcoin becoming the next basis of of currency, uh, and this idea that Bitcoin can become the digital gold, uh, and it does it does share quite a few attributes with traditional gold. It's verifiable, it's scarce, um, and in some ways, Bitcoin is a little bit better. Um, it's portable. It's it's divisible, and if you were to, if you were to make those comparisons, uh, Winklevoss does go through this in in an interview. Right? And if you were to believe that Bitcoin can become the, the the digital gold, then its potential is is quite fascinating, isn't it? Um, with a, if if you were to make some simple comparisons, the current market cap of gold is five trillion. Current price of Bitcoin is fifty k, and you and you kind of make that comparison and see um, if it can reach that five trillion which means that Bitcoin is still expected to have growth of 25 to 30 times. How much truth do you think there is to that? So, um, okay, let me start off by saying that. So if I went to the shop to, to, to buy, you know, a chocolate bar and I wanted to give the, the guy at the checkout Monopoly money, he wouldn't take it. But if I wanted to give him a 10 pound note, he'd take it, right? And the only reason- And quit for chocolate, bro. That is. Well, I give him a temper. Hopefully, get some change. Otherwise, <laughs> a lot of chocolate, right? But uh, it's only because he'll take that temper note because of the perceived value that he that he sees in that note. Okay, so yeah. since the the first civilizations, like you know, the Egyptians, etc., uh, the only kind of the um, stores of value that have stood the test of time are gold and silver, right? All kind of fiat currencies that have been created since then have failed sooner or later. So the internet itself is only thirty years old, right? And we are kind of overdue uh, a peer-to-peer um, digital cash. And Bitcoin is a great um, you know, version of that. It's a, it's a great first iteration. Um, you know, whether it may be Bitcoin, but it may be another thing like Bitcoin that kind of um, becomes this digital cash. But I do think we're overdue it. I think you know, Tyler's argument of um, Bitcoin hitting the market cap of gold, you know, that definitely has the potential to happen. I mean, right now, the market cap of, of um, Bitcoin is, is around a trillion, but of gold um, is something like five trillion. So it's a 5X from what it is now. It's definitely possible. And I, I think it's a reasonable argument uh, given kind of where, what's also happening in the world right now. Um, so it's a good argument with good fundamentals. I think 
Bitcoin has advantages over gold in that it's more transportable. You can store a lot of it without anyone kind of knowing about it. Um, it's, it's scarce. You know, the amount of gold that's mined over time has gone up. The amount of Bitcoin that's mined over time has gone down. You know, all of these characteristics make Bitcoin like a really good long-term store of value. And actually, if you bought Bitcoin at any point since its creation and held for at least two years, you would have made money. But the issue is that a lot of people, they come into the, into the space and they want to get rich quick and they kind of, they, they, they get caught up on how much money they can make in a short space of time um, and not being patient. That's why I always say to people, just be patient in this space. It's, it's going to go up. It's a very volatile market. But, you know, if you play the long game, which is what we call hodling in the crypto world, holding for a long period of time, you will be fine. In fact, the, the wealthiest people I know in this space are the people that um, huddle or hold that uh, cryptocurrency for a prolonged period of time. So um, I'd say I'd say Tyler's argument does does have some merits for sure, and it's something that's definitely possible um, to happen. Yeah, yeah, but obviously taking you you got to take it with a pinch of salt. But as you say, it's the long game, isn't it? That's what you've got to play. And I think a lot of people that kind of are introduced to this space are very much um, attracted to stories of doubling your money in a very a quick uh, period of time so uh, what one of the uh, so, so i guess this the second most popular crypto at the moment is this ether and that's underpinned by the largest blockchain available which is ethereum and in some ways so in some ways ethereum provides a lot more potential than than bitcoin in terms of its functionality so as an analogy ethereum kind of provides kind of a, a similar sort of basis as AWS in the cloud computing space. So you kind of build a company on or build a business on uh, AWS's cloud computing servers. And in that, in the real world, you pay in pounds, you pay Amazon in, in pounds or dollars. Uh, but in this case, you pay the cryptocurrency Ether. Is that your understanding? Is that how Ethereum is seen in terms of its potential? Yeah, I think the best way to describe it is that if, if Bitcoin is a digital gold, then Ethereum is kind of a digital oil. Um, and the reason people say that is because with oil, you know, I can use it to make plastics, I can use it to fuel my car, you know, it has a lot of use cases. So what, what has happened is that Ethereum is kind of uh, a technology. And then, you know, we, we were talking before that you can build your own cryptocurrency. So people have built their own cryptocurrencies on Ethereum that run on Ethereum. Uh, and there are thousands and thousands of you know all these projects, and that's why it's kind of referred to as the largest blockchain. You know, I've always loved Ethereum in terms of its value proposition and what it can uh, kind of bring to the world. You know, it, it, if Ethereum succeeds, you know, the next a lot of a lot of the uh, you know the next layer of the internet could be built on it. But one of the issues with Ethereum is um, something something called transaction fees. So every time that you're uh, kind of doing anything on the network. You need to pay a transaction fee. You know, when say you're transferring Ether, which is the currency from one wallet to another wallet on the Ethereum blockchain, you need to pay a transaction fee. And right now, because so many people are using it, um, and there's so many, only so many uh, transactions that the Ethereum network can process per second, um, you have to pay a very high fee. So right now, you know, you need to pay anywhere between five and ten dollars per per transaction to transfer Ether from one wallet to another, which is incredibly high. If you think about, you know, when you go and pay with your um, MasterCard, if you had to pay 5 to $10 every time you, you made a transaction, you'd think that's ridiculous. So what the Ethereum team is trying to do, which is uh, led by Vitalik Buterin, who's a, a really big uh, figure in the space, is that they're trying to essentially scale the number of transactions that the network can process every second. And if they don't do that successfully, that, successfully, that can you know, result in a downfall of Ethereum. You know, It's, yeah. it's in a really sticky situation right now because a lot of competitors are coming out 
we know with higher transaction fees and, and faster transactions, sorry, lower transaction fees and faster transactions. So, and they've been trying to scale it for years and it's taken a lot of time. Well, um, one so thing, hopefully it comes... Sorry, just one on that. Um, th- so you, you mentioned these transaction fees and obviously Ethereum is a blockchain. This might be a stupid question, but who do those transaction fees go to? Is it to... Um, it's a good question, actually. It goes to the miners, right? So right. essentially, you remember the miners are verifying the transactions. So mm-hmm. let's say I, I wanted to transfer some Ether from my wallet to your wallet. Well, yep. you know, how do you know that transaction is not fraudulent? So what the miners do, which is the computers, is they verify these transactions. And in, doing, in verifying the transactions, they get paid out the transaction fee, right? So mm-hmm. Ethereum miners right now are seeing record revenue. They're loving it because of all these really high fees. Um, so and, and these and these Ethereum miners are they individuals or are they like are they corporates that have set up for this purpose? Mixture, yeah. So before it used to be mostly individuals, mm. but you know what we've seen uh, and what other companies that do what we do have seen is in the last year or two, a lot more uh, corporations have been moving into the into the mining space. Mm. So the good thing about what corporations like about mining is that you're buying an asset you can physically hold, you know, you own these computers that you can hold and see with your eyes. Okay. Yeah. And they're, they're not, the, the price is not as volatile as the cryptocurrencies that they're mining. So uh, often corporations like that uh, as a way to kind of um, essentially dollar cost average buy their way into the currency instead of just putting all their money and buying a particular crypto all at once. But would that mean the surely these corporations that undertake the mining operations their performance is solely based on the fluctuations in price of the cryptos that they're mining right yeah so well some of them are publicly traded companies so what we've seen in this in this forum is some of the share values have gone up 10x or more so yeah the, the volatility of the because because the amount of profit that they generate is dependent upon the, the price of the coins that they're mining, okay, um, their share value can also fluctuate with the market. But like, people are aware of those risks when they're buying these companies. You know, they're not going to be as stable as a company like Amazon or Apple if you invest in them. I mean, we've yeah. seen so. Obviously, speaking of Tesla, which has been a, a big topic of discussion, where they yeah. put 1.5 billion of their cash reserves into uh, Bitcoin, and you know, I, we, so when when. We were seeing on the order books, um, our analysts at the fund, that someone was basically buying loads of Bitcoins off Coinbase and transferring them to one wallet. And we suspected it's either, you know, Elon Musk or Ray Dalio. Um, and it ended up being, being Elon Musk. Maybe Ray Dalio will follow suit in the near future. And recently, we've also seen um, several billion of dollars worth of Bitcoin being bought and transferred into another wallet. And we're hoping that's going to be a publicly traded company because then if they announce news, it's going to pump the price even more. But I think, you know, more publicly traded companies are going to follow suit and put a proportion of their cash reserves into Bitcoin. And MicroStrategy did it. Um, they put several billion in. Tesla put several billion in. So, you know, inevitably, when this, all this news starts coming out more and more, it's going to pump the price more. And I guess it's not just about the um, raw investment in Bitcoin. It's about the uptake of it as well, right? So MasterCard and, and I think Visa are, are following suit and adding that to their, their, their payment processing. Yeah, absolutely. And, pay, and PayPal did that. I mean, more and more companies are doing it because... It, it makes sense, uh, you know, especially because of the demand from the, the retail buyers is so high uh, and the amount of money that they can make essentially allowing people to be able to buy these currencies. Yeah. And it'd be, it'd be useful to talk about one particular application of Ethereum. Um, and this is one that you pointed out to me before we started this, and that's of decentralized finance. So essentially decentralized finance is financial services which are undertaken with no central authority. So uh, 
normally you'd have financial services being undertaken by a bank, um, which is obviously centralized by the bank itself. And instead of having people, you know, managing these financial services at, at the banks, you'd have automated code or, or smart contracts that, that manage these. And the potential for that is that these transactions or, or services become immutable. There's less risk of fraud um, being undertaken by, by individuals and the, the potentials there. And that's one of the biggest things that's um, going for Ethereum. How much do you know about that? Yeah, so tons. We, we've we've uh, you know invested in decentralized applications over the over the last twelve months, and uh, you know heavily involved in the space. So essentially, as you correctly mentioned, you know a centralized um, financial institution like a bank. You know, if I want to, if you want to get a loan, you have to go to the bank. Um, you have to sit with someone, and they 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 do a KYC, AML on you, all these sort of stuff, and then you get the the loan approved. You need to pay it back. Okay, but that's a very archaic way of kind of having financial products. So what decentralized finance does is there is no central entity that things are run through. It's essentially the network of, of people that are involved in that financial institution run, run it. And let's say you wanted to get a loan, for example, then it's peer to peer. So if you're lending money to me, then we can do it through a smart contract, which is essentially an intelligent code. Um, and we do not need to run through um, you know, any sort of central, central authority like a bank. And what that does is it means several things. You know, it means that I could potentially get better a better rate on my loan, okay, that, that I'm loaning out. And you can also earn more on the loan that you're putting out. And that's just that's just one application. There's all sorts of different applications like liquidity provision um, that's kind of being built in the DeFi space. And, you know, decentralized finance has been, the, so cryptocurrency is the best application of blockchain technology that has ever been, okay, so far. And decentralized finance is the best application of cryptocurrencies. It's the best subcategory that's been used, that's been built up you know, using cryptocurrencies because of its value proposition. I believe that this this decentralized finance technology has the potential to completely revolutionize our banking system. And, you know, if you think about it, if you're trying to transfer money to abroad and you need to wait three to five business days to get it abroad and you have to pay crazy amount of transaction fees, why? Now, the only reason that happens is because the bank wants that to happen so they can keep charging you so much money. But over time, and as technology develops and people realize that, this doesn't make sense. You know, people will want to do it through technology platforms instead of going through central institutions. So are you saying that DeFi can um, make redundant like the banks of today and the financial service providers of today? I think we will, a few decades from now, we'll look back and think how, you know, how did these banks operate like that? Because the banks make crazy amount of money. And at the end of the day, you know, it's the people that are using the services that are having to pay the cost. Um, and what happens is that as the technology develops, um, then it makes it better for the consumer. And, you know, I believe we are in need of uh, better financial products uh, that kind of give better rates to its users and better user experiences. And how, how vital is it for these smart contracts to be written perfectly? Because I, I feel like DeFi is going to have some resistance um, for people that aren't necessarily knowledgeable about the crypto space because they're relying on some entity or network to kind of provide those financial services without really knowing what their background is. So would you say that's one of the main main concerns or main obstacles for, for Ethereum and D- DeFi? So with certain DeFi projects, what sometimes happens is they can get hacked you know, or there's vulnerabilities in the code um, that may, means that they can get exploited. So, um, you know, to answer your question, it's very important for the code to be well written. But then again, that's the case for any company. Company, you know, like there's 
loads of hacks every day happening for like Amazon, you know, all these large companies. Um, so just, it's just as important um, for it to be built with a centralized authority or a decentralized entity, like a decentralized finance protocol. But um, I would say more important for, so what can happen sometimes is that if a decentralized finance project is hacked, because it's very early, early stages, and a lot of people are uneasy about this new subsector of the industry. Um, it, it, if one hack happens, then people can lose confidence in the project and they might go on to the next one um, and move on because there's so many other alternatives for often for people to look at. Um, so, you know, that's definitely always an important consideration that you need to look at, you know, what are the credentials of the team that have built this product? You know, would you trust them with your money? Would you trust them when using their service? But I think that's an important consideration kind of using any, um, any company at all. Yeah, it makes sense. And can you speak a bit about the need for stable coins? I understand that for DeFi to work, that, that there's a need for stable coins. What's your understanding of that? Sure. So, um, so where, where like something like uh, Ether or Bitcoin or Litecoin, they have a lot of volatility. So they can go up 10% in a day, they can go down 5%, etc. A stable coin is essentially a cryptocurrency whereby one token is pegged to uh, one fiat currency. So USDT, for example, is a stable coin, whereby every time you hold one coin, that represents one dollar, one US dollar. And it doesn't matter what happens to Bitcoin or all these other currencies. If you have, you know, a thousand USDT of the stable coin, then you can exchange that for a thousand dollars at any point, at any time. So they're incredibly important within this space, uh, stable coins, because they give you kind of um, a digital form of, um, fiat currency that is that that is not going to be as volatile or fluctuate as much, um, and <clears throat> so USDT for example is an ERC twenty token, which means that it's built on Ethereum. But there are you know other stable coins that are that are built on other applications like Ethereum. Um, so that's why. So if you imagine you know all these stable coins, a lot of them are moving through Ethereum, and that you know the that that's going to hike up the transaction fees and whatnot. So that's a really, you know, another really important reason that Ethereum needs to scale its transaction fees because as the space matures and more people start using these products, um, you know, it's not going to be sustainable long-term for, for it to be so high. So Ibrahim, if, if, um, if someone like me wanted to invest in DeFi specifically, is there any way to do that? There is, yeah. So you, you can access some of the, the, the DeFi projects um, on, you know, apps like Coinbase or Binance. So a lot of them are listed on there. But I would, what I would say is, you know, in the cryptocurrency space in general, tread carefully. But in, in the DeFi space, because it's an emerging sector within an emerging sector, then, you, you know, tread even carefully. So um, a lot of it, you know, do thorough, do thorough research on, on, firstly, the team. You know, when you look at a product, the first thing is the team. Who are these people that have built it? What are their credentials? What's their track record? And then the value proposition, look at the value proposition that it poses. Because a lot of these projects that are in this space, it's just hot air, you know? They're saying all these great things, all these fancy words, but actually when you look at their project, um, it doesn't work. You don't need what they're building. So, you know, what I always say is make sure you do your research before kind of putting your hard-earned money anywhere. Yeah, and if you were to predict when uh, DeFi will become a staple part of of financial services uh, in in the in the real world, um, what would you say? Um, it'd be difficult because it, it's only really started around a year ago. Uh, but I mean, it, it would take you know at least five to ten years. Um, and obviously, as you can imagine, decentralized finance is a threat to our current banking system and financial system. So there's going to be a lot of pushback from these institutions that are you know making a ton of money that have a ton of power. But at the end of the day. 
the power lies with the users, us, because, you know, it doesn't, we choose what we want to use. And if decentralized finance applications reach a point whereby, you know, you can move your money abroad faster with a cheaper rate, you can issue loans at better rates, um, you can get a mortgage with better rates, all of these different things, then the, the consumers are obviously going to start using it. You know, why do people use Amazon more than eBay? You know, why has Amazon become this mammoth whilst eBay was kind of like left and left, left behind? Because Amazon provides a great user experience and a great product. And if that happens with decentralized finance, then yeah, it can you know threaten our banking system or our financial system as we know it. Uh, one thing I meant to ask before is uh, you mentioned that there's there's better rates available through DeFi. What drives that? Um, so a lot because it, because it's peer to peer. So there's kind of no uh, central entity that's kind of taken a, a cut in the middle. So for example, like the certain platforms where you can earn yields of t- ten to fifteen percent annualized um, on your deposits, which is unheard of in the bank you know banks give out you know two percent at a push um so a lot of it is is that you're essentially cutting out the middleman and, and dealing between the um one entity you know one person and the other person essentially so so overall i mean it looks like blockchain crypto provides so much potential there's a lot of scope for systems as we know it today to be overturned and made redundant by blockchain and and the applications that are that are possible but we should probably talk about what obstacles there are so we touched upon them for for ethereum just then but i was more in a specific sort of way so so for example bitcoin i I can't imagine it's straightforward to, to to establish this but what is the ownership concentration like because I've heard that two percent of Bitcoin's owners own ninety-five percent of Bitcoin's market cap. Is there any truth to that? Um, there's definitely some truth to it. So you know, a large proportion of the wealth uh, in Bitcoin and you know a lot of these other uh, coins is is controlled by a small number of people. Um, and there's nothing we can do about that. It's the first first mover's advantage. You know, the people that hold the most Bitcoin are the people that got in early. Uh, you know, didn't sell and believed in the long-term value proposition of it. You know, you know, I know of people that, um, I know people that believe that Bitcoin is going to be a million dollars one day. Okay. And they're not willing to sell until they see, you know, Bitcoin at or near that price. And, you know, naturally people that are so bullish on it would have held and kept their stash over time. Um, but yeah, I mean, like any companies like that, I mean, if you think of like Amazon, like, um, you know, I don't know. I don't know if Bezos has how much proportion of the stock, but he has a very large proportion. And obviously, he's only invested and also going to have a large proportion. But yeah, that that's definitely a, a, a very important consideration. And you know, if Satoshi if Satoshi comes out and um, identifies, you know, what his identity is, uh, which I don't think is ever going to happen because it, it doesn't make sense for him to do, uh, then that can have you know a detrimental effect on the space. How so? Well, I mean, Satoshi has at least a million Bitcoins, if not more. And uh, the Bitcoin has been very popular because there's no one person governing it. Everyone governs it. So if this, this head figure comes out and says, hey, I'm Satoshi, um, then it's going to have detrimental impacts on the space. And not just that, but like, let's say, let's say the government now wants to go after him because they're saying, well, you've created this, this product that, can, that sometimes facilitates um, you know, illegal activities on the dark web then he could end up in prison. You know, it, it would never make sense for Satoshi to, to, to expose his identity. And how much power do these people have? So can they completely destroy Bitcoin with, given that they own so much of it? Uh, no, not really. I mean, the, the one thing they can do is dump all of their Bitcoins on the market and crash the price, right? But, you know, the, the, the only thing that can kind of really destroy Bitcoin is something called a, a 51% attack. And a 51% attack is whereby 
um, someone has enough computing power of more than 50, 50%, i.e. 51% or 50.1%, and then they can essentially you know, conduct fraudulent activities on the network because they have the more than half the power. So they have essentially the, the voting power. But the, the likelihood of that happening is so, so slim because the computing power of everyone that's mining Bitcoin is so huge that it would take billions and billions and billions for someone to uh, be able to conduct a 51% attack on Bitcoin. And it wouldn't make sense for them because by doing that attack, the, the asset class will be destroyed. So they'd be pumping all of that money to destroy the asset class and kind of screwing themselves over. It wouldn't make any sense at all. And another large topic right now is that of climate change and companies going green and, and coming up with their green initiatives to, to save the planet. And uh, cryptocurrencies fail on that front at the moment. We've talked about the the, the power that supercomputers uh, require to, to uh, undertake these mining operations. And these supercomputers need to be kept on at all times. They're kind of working 24-7 uh, to do these hashing operations. And one stat that kind of startled me was that the cryptocurrency space is using almost as much electricity per year as Argentina, which is just very hard to fathom that a fairly new technology is kind of using that much electricity. How, how important is it for miners to be conscious of this? And are things being done? And has this been recognized by the crypto space? Yeah, so it's definitely an important consideration. And obviously, you know, we, we've destroyed this planet, you know, a lot, especially in the last few decades. So um, it's a very important consideration. So for us, when we're mining, the majority of our mining operations are using renewable energy sources. Um, the majority of miners are also using re- renewable energy sources. So right now, two thirds of uh, the hash power, the computing power for Bitcoin comes out of China. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, and a lot of these Chinese, like, yeah, China still uses a lot of coal to to power its uh, energy plants. But um, a lot of those also in China are running renewable energy sources. And the reason for that is just because renewable energy, like hydropower mainly, can be a lot cheaper, can be super, super cheap sometimes. Uh, And that's what we stick to, actually. The majority of our mines are built using hydropower. Um, And, you know, what's going to happen, I believe, is that as as renewable energy sources, you know, the technology for it becomes cheaper over time, like um, even a high proportion of cryptocurrency mining is going to move into uh, it's going to move into renewable energy sources. Yeah, I mean, as the price rises, there'll be more competition as more miners want to join the space and it will inevitably result in more energy being required to, to form the operations. But yeah, I am seeing that a lot of miners use renewable energy and that's that's only going to increase, I mean, with, with technology advances in the renewable energy space. So yeah, we've discussed a lot there and uh, I just wanted to pose a few concluding questions to you. Which I, to be fair, we have touched upon a little bit, but maybe as a definitive opinion from from a crypto expert, how integrated do you think crypto and blockchain will be in our lives in a decade's time? Um, I think it has the potential. It definitely has the potential to be very integrated. Um, And I think that um, what's different about this bull run that we're currently in versus the 2017 bull run is that there's a lot more institutional money a lot of large companies getting involved in the space. And these, these people are not looking to flip a quick profit out of their investments, right? The PayPal's, the Tesla's and stuff, they, they're, they're going to be holding and invested in the technology long term. And I think that's going to provide a lot of maturation for the, for the space and attract more people into it. Um, and, you know, as I've mentioned, I think that the, the way that we 
uh, store our assets at the moment, the way that we send money to each other, the way that, you know, that we always need to run it through a centralized entity. I don't think that's going to be um, the case, um, you know, in the future. And, and because of um, the way, how quickly the space is maturing, and all this technology that's being built within it, you know, it definitely has that potential to, you know, have profound implications um, on all of us. And what do you think the largest obstacle to this is? I, th- I think it's the, the large corporations, you know, the, the, the current financial institutions. The, there's going to be pushback. And, and these guys control, um, you know, a lot of power, a lot of money. So that's going to be an obstacle. The other obstacle is the user experience. So um, I don't know if you've dealt with cryptocurrencies at all or anything, but it can be, uh, it can, you know, sometimes be challenging, you know, complicated, might not have the best user experience. So I think that, you know, people within the industry also need to build better technology platforms um, to improve, um, you know, the, the, the way that users can access this asset class. Um, so, but that will come with time. That will come with time. I do think that the biggest obstacle will, will be uh, how these the large um, organizations that we utilize are going to react to this uh, sector and how much pushback there's going to be. And we've talked about this as well, um, but how important is it for these corporates? I guess just to rephrase that, what, what do you think corporates see in cryptocurrencies that is causing the recent uptake from large companies across the globe? So, so stuff like some MicroStrategy and Tesla, I think they've seen that Bitcoin is a great hedge against the, the dollar long term, um, especially because, you know, 25% of all US dollars have been printed in the last 12 months, which is insane, you know? Um, you know, a comment that I sometimes often hear from my mum was everything's getting so much more expensive, you know, that my, my money's buying a lot less than it used to. Um, and that's because basically they just turn the printers on and print more money. So these companies have seen that Bitcoin can be this hedge. And then, um, you know, Ethereum or, or a platform like Ethereum can allow these really useful applications to be built on that can, um, you know, provide a lot of um, good use cases for people. And I think the best, so a lot of people have built blockchains for different stuff like tracking, tracking logistics. Um, some people have put genetic sequencing on the blockchain. I think all of that is just, it's, it's not, it's not going to have any long-term value proposition. The real value proposition of virtual technology is in cryptocurrency and uh, in the financial industry. That, that will always be, in my opinion, the best application of blockchain technology. Everything else is like, you know, nice stuff, but you can, it's not that important. So, yeah, I think that's kind of, that's kind of my viewpoint on it. And very final point, what is your most important piece of advice when coming to investing in cryptos? Uh, be careful, you know, just be careful. It, it, a lot of people just go, just go all, you know, all in uh, without much research. Um, they, they look at how much they can make without looking at the potential downsides. Um, so always tread carefully, always seek the advice, uh, you know, people that have been in the industry longer and, and know a bit more because, you know, experience is priceless. Uh, you can read so much on the internet, but experience is always, is always key. Um, that'd be kind of my, my main piece of advice. Just be careful. Well, thank you very much for your time, Ibrahim. Sure, thanks for having me. My pleasure. And that's it for me today, guys. Uh, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Do let me know what you thought at Talking Taxman on Instagram. Uh, and if you're feeling particularly knowledgeable about something, it could be anything. And if you'd like to flex that knowledge on a podcast, do let me know. Do get in touch with me. I'm always on the lookout for potential guests. But until next time, do take care. <laughs>